0: When was the last time you had a good conversation about something you love over drinks? Coffee, tea, or at the bar, I've had some of my best conversations about music while sharing a beverage with a friend. In this series, members of the Adjective New Music Composers Collective sit down to discuss pieces and composers we love over drinks.
1: I'm just hearing one side that's stronger.
2: But you're you're getting a lot of right, yeah. I'm getting
1: a lot of right. And I Um, went into my preferences and everything supposedly... Fair and balanced, you know, so <laughs> it'll be okay. It'll Fox be okay. Fox News is a setting. <laughs> well, come January 20th, we're going to sure find out, you know. <laughs> oh,
2: boy. Oh, too soon. Sorry. <laughs> Fair. Well, uh, we should probably talk about the opera at some point. We should. Yeah. 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 Um, I, so I took some notes, and in my notes I have written down "We're crazy." Was this my idea?
1: Um, <laughs> I don't know whose so idea went. it was it was my idea because Rob's like, "Let's do a conversation over drinks," and I'm like, "Here's the premise: I hate this opera. You guys convinced me <laughs> <laughs> that it's a good opera, and I um, I have like a change of opinion. It's not my favorite opera, but I did give it a chance." And that being said, I hated the opera by barely watching five minutes of it. So I'm a jerk, is basically what it comes down
0: to. Dang, talk about book by its cover, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) Opera by its opening credits. (laughs) Well,
1: well, not by its opening. I actually, I have a backstory with my seeing Lamar Deloitte. For five minutes in the middle of it, I have a story with that. Actually, okay, but it's not terribly interesting. Well,
0: well, before before we get into the story, because yes. I, I do want to hear it, we should we should start by as I mean as always, we should start by saying what we're drinking. Yeah, it's true. Well, Andrew, what are you drinking?
2: Well, to be to be quite honest, it's uh it's not all that good. I opened it up because <laughs> it looked interesting. It's a it's a ginger apple ale, um, and the maker will remain nameless because it's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Man, it sounds like it would be an awesome mixer. Actually, it doesn't sound like it would be an awesome mixer. It's mixed, uh, ginger,
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
0: I think maybe the only thing that might be able to save that is it's it, it is alcoholic itself. It's it ale. is
2: it is yes. Oh, Ch-
0: chaser, a whiskey. I don't right?
2: know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't
0: want you don't want to go with clear. Yeah. My, well, uh... You don't want to go with clear, uh, liquors <laughs> with that. I mean, definitely a brown something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, w- I was
1: going to say you can dilute it with soda water, but that might think- make things like terribly, terribly bad. Or you could stop drinking it, although you're yeah, supposed to be sipping uh, up the You
2: know, I'm almost willing to try anything as an improvement, but I think I have to suffer through because I don't have an extension cord for my headphones and or my laptop. <laughs> uh, Jen, what are you drinking?
1: I am drinking an horchata, which makes me very happy. I decided to get...
0: Horchata.
1: Yes. Fancy. Uh, got Mexican food tonight. In a small town, Ooh. Delaware, Ohio, which this is actually a pretty good taco stand. <laughs> we actually need more taco stands in Delaware, Ohio.
0: <laughs> I'm in Delaware. Ohio. No, sorry, that's Ohio. Well, right. Just so we're right. clear. But. <laughs> or we magically wisp away to Delaware. Mm-hmm. Hi. I'm in Delaware. Sorry, that was a Waynes World reference. <laughs> it totally was. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I should go with that from now
1: on.
3: <laughs>
0: All right. And I'm I'm drinking some poo R tea because for me it's 9:45 in the morning. That's so. right. Good morning to you. Ah, good evening. <laughs>
2: yes.
1: Yes. I hear that tea is yeah. actually very healthy. So cheers to that.
0: Well, there's this thing in China where, you know, you can go to like to a tea market and you can sit down and try different teas and you try each one and they say, oh, this one's good for this. Oh, this one's good for that. Oh, this one's good for this. This is good for health. This is good for health. And I'm like, you're drinking water. It's all good for you. Like... (laughs) Hopefully, <laughs> that's as true. L- as long as, that's as
2: they true. boil it, it depends first. Depends on the water over I think here. You
1: need to boil the water first to really make sure.
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: okay. but it's but I, I I'm always kind of skeptical because they're always like, "Oh, this one is really good for health," and I'm like, "And that's I, I'm not doing a uh, a a horrible um, I don't know racist impersonation. Like this is literally what they say. This is good for health." Mm -hmm. And I mean, because, you know, English is their second language, obviously, but, um, but yeah, it's just never, it's just always vague. This is good for health. And I, I, anyway, it's just, it's just something (laughs) funny to me because it's like, yeah, hydrating is healthy.
1: Well, I figured they can't um, say it's good for prosperity or money because you can't really back that up with boiled water. <laughs> so at least if they say it's healthy, you know, yes, it is healthy. <laughs> they can actually like have some claim on that. that. That's my brain at this hour right now. You're welcome. Fair enough. Think about it next time you go All shopping right. for tea.
0: You just convinced me. <laughs> All right. So did we figure out who's... Uh, Who's whose um choice this was to to review the Sarajevo opera?
2: I guess it was Jen's.
0: I, I think it uh, was it, my yes.
1: idea. <laughs> my weird, I'm going to try and like this opera because I should, so therefore I'm gonna make two others listen to it and suffer with me.
0: <laughs> but okay, Jen, but why should you like this opera? Like, is well, there is there something about it that it that just tells you you, you must like Sariyaho?
1: So my impression of Sariyaho's music, it is amazingly beautiful. The textures are spot on and ethereal, and I could listen to that forever. And even more importantly, what I really like about Sariyaho's writing is she writes really well for the voice. So I yes. go, okay. She's a fantastic composer and writes really well for voice. Ergo, I should watch this opera, and so that is my theory behind that.
0: Okay, and then you uh, watched five minutes of it and y- decided you hated it. Yes. So what's that story? Okay,
1: so um, Netflix had this um, the the Peter Sellers version of the opera back in the day, where Netflix was not a streaming service. Back when they actually did mail out dvds and hot damn they had this opera and so my librettist was like oh the Sariahu opera we've been hearing so much about it let's rent it right so she like puts it in the dvd player and like she decides to watch it without me totally okay i come downstairs i'm like what is this music which sounded pretty but she's like oh this is lamar duant it's really boring the story is really boring and I'm like listening to it for 5 minutes I'm like what's this about It's like well it's about a jongleur who has this idea of a you know perfect love and he sings of this other woman and this other woman hears of this guy and they sing about this perfect love and he you know decides to go and sail out to go see her meets her and then dies I'm like that is the stupidest idea an opera.
2: I'm like, this is a
1: whole whole goddamn opera about this. I mean, the music is beautiful. So that aside, when I watch an opera, I'm very attuned to what kind of story they're telling me. And there are different ways to tell a story. But one, admittedly, didn't like the idea of the story because it's so simple if you think about it. And I'm like, how can you stretch this out for a long period of time, for a grand opera period of time? But two... Music may be beautiful, but I just may be bored to tears. So I watched five minutes of it, and nothing terribly exciting was going on. And I'm like, I am bored. You
2: know, (laughs) this is is so very interesting, because um, I have to say that this... Of, of many of the recent pieces by, uh, shall we say, important contemporary composers, this has kind of been a guilt of mine that I haven't been able to stay awake through it uh, until this point. <laughs> I, it, was a, it was a challenge that I set for myself for this podcast to, to really buckle down and to, to get through the whole thing because of how frequently this is getting performed over the last 15 years um where it is getting performed and of course who it is that that was the all all of this is kind of weighing on my musical conscience that's it's telling me I really should be able to get through this.
1: Yes. But we shouldn't be th- well, like we're we're like not expected to think that as composers. But we do. I have to th- I I think we do.
0: I don't know. I mean, but that but that all goes to say that you're I think you're assuming that or you're, well, you have guilt. that is like, I should, what is wrong with me that I can't, that I can't do this, you know, that I can't listen to it, that I can't appreciate it. And I mean, I, I don't necessarily know that that's a, that's a correct thought to have, you know, it's like, um, it's like a lot of, uh, critics of Radiohead say that, all the, all like the music critics, they, they, they never have a bad thing to say about Radiohead, you know, it's like, oh, this new Radiohead album is out. So you, I mean, it's amazing before it even comes out, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I feel like in a way, Sarjaho gets that same treatment, you know, mm. oh, it's Sarriaho, it's amazing. You know, it, it can't not be amazing because it's Sarjaho.
2: Mm. Does that make sense? No, I no, I think it does. Um, And uh, I well, part of it too is the fact that I consider myself a lover of opera. Um, It's it's not as if I put on opera and typically fall asleep. Uh, In fact, um, and I I, I, perhaps uh, Jamie, my wife, is probably going to kill me for actually airing this. But there's only a handful of operas that I've actually fallen asleep during. and uh, until recently, L'Amour de la Wanne was one of them, along with um, Palias and Melisande, the debussy. yeah, which of course, uh, Sarriaho comes right out and, and pretty much explicitly states that the debussy was one of the the uh, one of the influences on her operatic writing. Um, and so it it you know didn't come as a surprise to me, considering that was my experience with Palias uh, and this piece. And, and it might be sacrilegious, but I also haven't made it through all of Corleano's Ghosts of Versailles. I think the first half is absolutely marvelous, and somewhere in the second act, I just pass out.
1: You know, I, I'm, I'm glad we're all admitting this, and maybe my beverage should be stronger, but I will let you know, Andrew, that I've also <laughs> fallen asleep during operas that I actually really enjoyed. Oh, God, yeah. Really enjoyed them. Um, a few Philip Glass oh, death operas. Death in Venice. Oh, Yeah, you know, I think I've I've like dozed off to that one too, but was able to like rewind the video. I was like, oh, that happened.
0: (laughs) If only we could do that in a in a theater. In a theater,
2: right. correct, correct. Um, a TiVo for opera theater. Yeah, no kidding.
0: Just yell at the performers, be like, "Hey, I fell asleep. You, <laughs> like, go go back like five minutes." Which, Maestro, di
2: capo tutti. <laughs>
1: like, can you do what you did back then? And can you just repeat the aria? Can can like the female character get up and like come back to life exactly. and then die again? Because uh, I right. fell asleep. Really sorry. You sounded fantastic. It was me, not you. Me.
0: Okay, thanks. Sorry. Yeah,
1: my bad. Um, I, was, I was going to say, I, I think actually now when I go to an opera, because I do believe they're the true multimedia work or one of many, um, you can't yes. just judge it on one thing alone. And let me tell you, I mean, as composers, I can't imagine the timing of sustaining a full-length opera like I are many oh, yeah. operas where I'm like, oh man, the timing is wonderful during the second half or something mm-hmm. like that. And I right. don't mean to sound snarky. I'm just, you know, being honest of how I personally interpreted the opera. So so don't feel bad, Andrew. And yes, I've fallen asleep. Maybe I should coffee it, up. More it is often before um, I go watch these. Well, operas, the, I
2: think there's a few things anyway. we, we should kind of get out in the open. I mean, it is, as we've mentioned, a rather substantial work. It's uh it's a little over two hours long, right? Um, it is in five acts, and as Jen pointed out, um the story is rather sparse, and admittedly, Sarayaho says there is basically n- almost no action in this opera. The action is yeah. supposed to be the internal struggle of the protagonists, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, well, it's an opera about nothing, right it's the it's the Seinfeld of operas. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Although, this is something I was thinking about when I was watching it in the movie theaters with a a composer friend of mine, Lawrence Baldeco, is that we were wondering if Kaya Sariajo's music is so complex, you know, with its textures and its timbres and everything, that if you had more of a complicated storyline, the opera would
2: most certainly
0: flop. That's a good point.
2: Well, another interesting point that I think is related is this idea that, um, the first time I tried watching this, I did it without really reading the synopsis. I mean, I, I typically don't, uh, when I, when I go to operas, I just kind of experience them. And I guess that ends up making me rely very heavily on a composer's sense of pacing and timing and the dramatic story arc and storytelling that takes place, um, within the libretto. But for this, obviously it's, it's so stretched out and it's so internal that you, you can't really necessarily thread the pieces individually together the first time you're watching it, especially a non-French speaker, uh, shall we say. And, and I'm listening to it just recently, having made it all the way through without uh, falling asleep. And I did (laughs) read the entire story several times and conceived of the opera as a whole, maybe the way a spectralist or a post-spectralist would. And I think uh, uh, on the... Peter Sellers, the Deutsch Grammophon recording from 2005, that uh, that DVD, there are several interviews uh, with Asa Pekka Salonen and Sariajo and Peter Sellers. And uh, Sariajo does say that she conceived of this as a whole first, thinking about the totality of the form. And so knowing what the story is and knowing that's the overall arc and then just kind of experiencing it in time, I think led me to greater satisfaction in the end.
1: Yes, I was going to say that your line of more experiencing the opera, I'd have to say that after hating the singular five-minute clip that I saw years ago, I was like, I feel like maybe I would also have to experience it, just be absorbed in the music and the Mm. lack of plot, so therefore my focus would be more musically oriented and just let it happen and experience it in that way.
0: That's kind of the, um, the strategy that I, I went for as well, you know, just because I actually, um, I think I, I, a long time ago I did rent this or something and, um, I did watch it and then just recently I've just been listening to it again, um, So not, not watching the action though. I mean, you don't really need to watch it. (laughs) I mean, as we said, like nothing, nothing happens on stage. Um, but also following along with, with the text and, um, I mean, musically, you know, I said what I said about Sariajo earlier, like you can't, no one can say a bad thing about Sariajo, but, then again, I don't really say any bad things about Sariaho either. You know, I think she's pretty amazing. You know,
1: I
3: mean, she can. And I don't say is. any she bad things about
0: Radiohead either. I'm, <laughs> I'm a fan. You know, like I, I, there is nothing bad I could say about Radiohead or Sariaho or Bjork for that matter. But, um, but yeah, like just experiencing the music. I mean, good God, like that woman can can write some music. You know. And it was interesting to me that you know there are really only three main characters, you know, yes. like, uh, and then you have like the uh, the crowds or the that kind of represent the the sometimes represent a crowd and sometimes represent the internal feelings of each character. But for for all intents and purposes, I mean, this opera is an opera of solos and just solos and an yeah. occasional duet. Right. And I think and I think that really lends itself well to Saraiha's style. I mean, if you look at um if you look at her piece for uh soprano and electronics. Um what's that piece called? Uh Lone Lone? Lone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you look at that piece, I mean it's it wouldn't be hard to imagine sticking that piece directly into this opera and it would just fit, you know. Well,
2: and I think that was—I think that was the predecessor. I think that's where a lot of her compositional ideas for *Le Mour de La Juan actually came from. Yeah,
1: I actually have a couple of thoughts with what Rob just said. Um, one was um, you said you were listening to the opera again, and you said you don't necessarily have to watch it. And before um, today's podcast, I was re-listening to some scenes or some pieces um, from the opera that I really enjoyed. And I think I enjoyed just purely listening to it more so than watching the opera. Um, Now it could be, I mean, I think that the singers um, for the Met performance, because this is what I'm kind of basing my impression of the opera this time, liking it far more than the five minute clip I saw a few (laughs) years ago, Um, you know, hearing the Don Upshaw recording fantastic um the singer Mm -hmm. for the met opera of what's her name suzanne phillips fantastic singer also i just felt like though if i got rid of the visuals if i got rid of the led lights which were fantastic but the same time a little distracting and part of me was like i wonder how this looks live as opposed to on the movie screen in delaware ohio um that i enjoyed listening to it purely as a (laughs) musical experience and watching it on the screen so that was the one thought there
0: i love that you Sorry. Delaware, Ohio. Finish, finish. Yeah, Delaware, <laughs> Ohio, exactly. <laughs> I'm in Delaware. I'm in Delaware.
1: <laughs> um, and the second thing I was thinking of with having it be so simple was that um, while I was watching the opera, Musically Simple, is that um, it almost was like a throwback to me for early Baroque opera. Equally beautiful, equally boring. And I remember thinking this while listening to the music, and this this especially came to my mind when Rob, you were saying you can take an earlier piece of Sariah's and plug it in. I'm like, dude, I bet you could take another baroque composer's piece and stick it right in the opera, and we would be like, dude, that totally works because it's just so simple, but also beautiful. So those are my thoughts yeah. on
0: that. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that before, but you're you're totally right that it is kind of like it is totally a throwback to the style of baroque opera just updated you know and um but in a in another way you know i think you could kind of relate this to uh cert- certain moments of tristan or something you know where it's just like the park and bark you know mm-hmm. just like just sit there and sing for half an hour and uh and it works i i haven't seen the the Met. um I, I haven't seen any videos from the Met, but I have seen some of the pictures and like the LED lights that you're you're talking about. It looks like it would be kind of cool. Um, it actually reminds me of um, the most recent uh, Nine Inch Nails tour, where um, I know this is a weird thing to relate it to, but no, that's <laughs> like cool. um, in in their tour, the, uh, many of the visuals were done by um, a grid of uh, like a three-dimensional grid of LED lights where they could, you know, pretty much project images in three dimensions. And it was pretty cool, I have to say. And it looks like pretty much the same idea from that. So let's just say that, you know, Nine Inch Nails did it first. So sorry, (laughs) whatever.
1: Well, I I guess what I was going to say there was, I bet it's better live. Like... How it translate yeah. in the movie yeah, theater sure. was still pretty awesome. But I feel like I did have a better experience just listening to Sarriola's music than having everything come at me at once. But maybe I, I should watch the opera again <laughs> instead of listen to it.
2: Well, I mean, there's certainly a depth and a richness to the music itself. And I think uh, while we had said that there's only uh three characters and then the two choirs that making the one great choir there toward the end um the orchestra is huge yes i mean it is there are lots of colors there i mean you know, we're talking we're talking romantic orchestra plus because there's I'm pretty sure there's four flutes, uh, three of the rest of the winds, four horns, two trumpets, three trombones, a tuba. I'm pretty sure there's five percussionists. Yeah, uh, I think it's four. Uh, that would four seem about right. Yeah, yeah, four percussionists plus timpani, right? The, the standard fare for a spectralist. Uh, <laughs> two harps. I know there's two harps. There's definitely piano. Of course, there are electronics, and then the gaggle of string players. There is just so much sound, which I suppose, if a composer is attempting to have all of this internal struggle taken, you know, to the conveyed to the audience externally via music, you'd need a, a, just a host of colors, um, and, and the types of things she's able to get. You know for for some of these seasons, I don't know about you, but uh it 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 got more intense for me the further into the opera it was, and to be honest, I think acts four and five are where this opera really exists. Those, yes. that for me is the best music.
1: Yes, and I actually think that on that note, the writing for opera chorus gets better. In Acts 4 and 5, too. Like, in the beginning, they're used, you know, like, they have a purpose. They are the traditional, like, Greek chorus, in a way, right? The commentary and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really feel like I agree with Andrew. just comes into full form toward the end. So I wish that the five minutes I saw a long time ago were toward the end. Then I would have been like, "Ah, I should (laughs) watch this (laughs) opera. This is badass. Initially
2: hooked. That's right. (laughs) Instead of the beginning of the
1: opera going, what is this? We're done. (laughs) So... (laughs)
0: i actually um i thought some of the like well i think act, for me act two i'm i'm more drawn to the vocal writing in act two you know when it's uh just um the oh, i oh, can't pilgrim believe bl- clements yes yeah.
2: clements and the pilgrim kind of discussing
0: yeah, I mean I think towards the end of act 2 the the vocal writing is just absolutely gorgeous. But then again, like I said, you know, it's it it reminds me so much of Lone that of course that would be what I was drawn to. To your point of the orchestra, you know, being so large, I thought there were so many times when we got down just to like a flute and the singer or mm-hmm. a harp and the singer. You know, yeah. she she really and I didn't feel like there were too many times when I felt like the orchestra was, was too much. You know, yeah. it's, it's a big orchestra, but she uses it as like a light orchestra, if that makes sense.
2: When, when accompanying the singer, actually, there were quite a few moments that were uh, rather Puccini-esque and maybe, you know, real true opera connoisseurs will, will haggle with me over it. But I felt that she, she generally is quite supportive of the voice and, and really only uses the tutti ensemble for those extreme moments of just visceral tension. Yeah.
1: Yes. And even when she does it, she does it deftly, like um, toward the end of the opera when Clemence um, gets actually angry, which is actually my favorite part of the opera, because I'm like, mm-hmm. she has feeling. Yay. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the orchestra is loud and bombastic and never gets in the way. I mean, yeah. I think that Sariago who's a fantastic orchestrator in that regard, which is really hard to do.
0: Truth fact.
2: <laughs> um sorry <laughs> you'll be happy to know though that i'm almost through my terrible beverage <laughs> oh my God, has it got any better no
3: <laughs> Give
2: which is saying something considering it should get better right No. <laughs> with, with the additional uh alcoholic consumption
0: well i mean it's also getting warmer so that could that oh, would make true. it worse i think
2: yeah
1: <laughs> give up, Andrew. Just give up. I, just, I, I
2: just, shouldn't dwell. That's right.
0: Yeah, just toss it. Either either throw it down the sink or th- just just chug it and get it over. Oh no, with. that's
2: right. You don't throw it on the sink. You you throw it back. That's yeah. all it is. Because uh, <laughs> I'm stubborn. You are.
1: <laughs> I am too. And from one stubborn person to another, just let it go. <laughs> just just give of the beverage. <laughs>
0: Okay, so so we're going to talk about uh, two, two scenes in particular. Well, really, uh, the opening of Act 4 and then uh, the second to last scene in the opera from Act 5. So, Andrew, you chose uh, the opening to Act 4. So what, uh, what really drew you to, to that as something that you really saw some value in?
2: Um, there were a couple things. The opening of Act Four, obviously this is a big, um, for for quite a few minutes, we have just the ensemble uh, doing things um, before Joffre comes and, and decides to go on this journey, right? Uh, getting into the pilgrim's boat. And so it just struck me the first time that I heard it as this being a really, really important moment in the opera. And I think that comes across due to how she's scoring and, and just the general intensity of it. Not only that, it did uh, strike a chord, maybe pun intended, um, <laughs> with, it, it reminded <laughs> yeah. me a lot of Grise, um and, and particularly uh, uh, Partials, and this idea that we have this big impulse that then is kind of spectrally. You hear the overtones gradually build, and then there's another gesture that's similar, but but now slightly modified, and it continues to change. Um, that just really struck me as being a clear tie with you know one of one of her uh, mentors in a lot of ways. Um, so I found that to be very fascinating, and that that's actually something that. Um, intrigued me. So I definitely wanted to, to kind of feature that in this podcast. Not only that, the use of the choir here, I, I uh, in my notebook of things uh, that I wrote down while I was watching it, I have stunning um, because the choir is used really as an additional orchestral instrument. Yeah, And so they're doing a lot of vocalizations and, and sound noise elements Um that add this great richness to the texture that also remind me of a of, uh, French composer from the early 20th century, uh, the the quote-unquote lost uh, uh, Impressionist, the, the third Impressionist there, uh, Lily Boulanger. Um, are either of you familiar with her, her old Buddhist prayer? No.
0: Oh.
3: I
2: absolutely love, love that piece. It's for orchestra, tenor, soloist, and choir. And... And in that, she treats the choir very much as as part as as instrumental, but not in not in a way that's you know you say that to a vocalist and they run screaming for the hills, right? Um, not in not in a way where the it's not suitable for the voice, but the voice is a component of the total sound. And I just think there's some really eerie, ethereal stunning things that happen as a result. And so I heard that and I, and I just said, wow, that's, that's a page right out of the Boulanger book.
0: Since you said that, I mean, uh, this this reminded you of the Grise partials, um, I can't hear it as anything other than that now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <clears throat> but there was something you said about it, that it was this initial impulse. And yeah. I mean, that's... I I feel like if we take it as an impulse, that clearly connects to the story in this moment because this is his impulse, uh, l- literally on a whim to go across, you know, go across a vast sea in search, yes. you know, and he and he regrets that. Uh, I mean, later on, he he's like doubting himself whether I should be going. That was was I too impulsive, you know, mm-hmm. to to do this. So when you when you consider it like that then i think there's some serious you know like it's it's not just a an opening it's not just a way to introduce the fact that now these two people you know the um the pilgrim and joffrey are on a boat in the ocean but mm-hmm. it really has like it it's it's you know commenting on the story if yes. if we take it like that i don't know if she took it like that but it's a good it's a good thought, I think.
2: you know, it's since we're speaking about this being so obviously referential and and so obvious in in these respects, it would surprise me if she didn't think about it in in some way uh, related to what it is we're describing here because, I mean, she spent she spent a good amount of time pondering this idea for the opera. Um, uh, a few years, but the actual writing of it, I think what took place in 18 months. She, she wrote this, she wrote this whole two hour opera, um, right. <laughs> it, r- relatively quickly as, as operas would go. And, uh, and you know, when you, when you strip it away, it is all incredibly simple. The, the, the plot and the themes, right. It's, it's of love and death and there's a journey. I mean, there's, I mean, those, that's every opera ever, <laughs> right? And so to have to have something like this type of musical material at the beginning of Act 4, where we have, as you said, this impulsive decision that carries with it significant ramifications. I mean, it, it is this moment here, which eventually is his undoing. And by that, you know, leads... Clements into the final scene, you know. Right.
0: It's also uh, just in terms of the orchestra, I mean it's hard uh, after she kind of gets through the um after she gets through the initial, you know, like building up of all the overtones and then we start to hear uh uh other well actually very much like uh partials when it, you know, more and more chaos is introduced or rather more and more noise is introduced into the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, once we start to get to that, it's kind of hard to listen to a piece about the sea and not, you know, think about Debussy. Debussy, yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, Very, I mean, <laughs> so true. Or, orchestral colors were. I mean, she's she. You could you could make a pretty clear argument that she's kind of coming from that tradition anyway. But orchestral colors really reminded me of La Mer.
2: Yeah, yep. I could I could definitely hear that.
1: Yep. I was also going to say, if this is the beginning of the end, I was actually wondering if Sarioho was a little restrained with her orchestration. We know that she has quite a substantial orchestra at her fingertips. She's very restrained. Um, I was thinking that texturally speaking at the beginning where nothing as interesting as going on orchestrationally, nothing is as thick as compared to acts four and five, that she was more mm. mimicking the jongleur lifestyle. like the orchestra was more or less representing Geoffrey. And then when he takes that journey across the sea, that's when things get a little murky. That's when things get a little thick. And in a way, she's killing his music kind of preemptively. We all know what's going to happen. I mean, granted, if we've read you know, the synopsis, unlike some people maybe on this podcast who do eventually read synopses before operas, but um, that <laughs> she's holding back. She's holding back right here. Wow. <laughs> I love you, Andrew. Yeah, I'm just just saying. So, so in a way, she kind of had the long form going back to her long form. She's very restrained with her orchestration up until they go on this little journey across the sea that will kill him. And that's when, you know, the power of the ocean and, like, in a way, the jungler's music dies. Yeah. It gets pretty thick after that point. It's like she's preemptively letting us know what's going to
0: happen. Good points. All right, let's listen to it.
2: That was almost coherent.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and, and of course, by that, I mean me.
1: <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm up next, dude. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're definitely up next. So um, how do you how do you say this movement's title again? My fr- I, I cannot pronounce anything in French to save my life.
1: It's hard, uh, but I think. Based on my knowledge of, uh, or doing Duolingo, which I still need to do tonight, Ugh, or else the owl will get mad at me. Um, je vais cru en toi.
0: Je vais cru en toi.
1: What? Or let's just good. go with, we can go with the English, which is, I believed in you. And this is where uh, Clemence gets kind of angry at God, because Geoffrey dies. Um um, if I were to give a description of what's musically going, ha- uh, what's happening right now is that the scene right before it, um, which is just, encore" or I still, I still hope. And this is, you know, technically Joffrey's still breathing. Technically he could still make it. And she sings this aria. It's beautiful. And then Joffrey dies and, you know, the beginning of the scene, if we're going to uh, do the tracks and the recording, you know, opens with like high strings and harp, very ethereal. Like you're talking maybe like three instruments and it's very quiet. And then Clemence starts raging. And that's when you hear the orchestra. But just to point out what we were talking about earlier, I'm actually thinking this is a great example, almost like a textbook example of how to write for voice and really big orchestra. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. Don Upshaw and uh, the woman who sang the, the same role at the men. It's not a huge soprano role. It's not a Wagnerian soprano role. And so you hear her spit out her words. And it's just jumping all over the place, which is just very, um, it's a, uh, very athletic of the singer to do. And basically the singer says her thing. And then the orchestra comes in with the, like this huge, massive spectral chord, which I need to steal that chord. I think it's amazing. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I really need right? big chords like that in my life, but not while somebody is singing. So <laughs> obviously not that <laughs> I should give props to Sarriaho, but I mean, she clears out. And um, the orchestra is definitely being uh, doing its traditional role that an orchestra should do or the music should do, which is like really accent the emotion that's going on. Um, bringing it back to what uh, Andrew said earlier about Act 4, about you know, how the opera chorus is kind of used as an instrument. This is one thing I remember while watching the opera in the theaters is that I feel like Saria Ho does kind of morphs the chorus in so much that you might feel that there are either two opera choruses, the actual opera chorus and the orchestra even, or that the that the orchestra is merged into the opera chorus. I will though I will say for this scene specifically, the opera chorus is acting as a traditional opera chorus. And um, what I especially like timbrelly speaking with this movement is whenever uh, Sariaho wants to bring out certain words or certain textures, she almost like takes the vowel of whatever the singers are singing and accentuates it with a certain orchestral timbre. Yes. Um, I would have to really like actually look at the real score, but there are times where she uses like a vibraphone or a high harmonic. But my favorite part in, um, the specific scene is where the opera chorus is basically telling her the, the women of Tripoli are saying, um, be silent. You're going to anger God. If you're raging against him so badly, he's like, God is going to bring pestilence and all these bad things. And so they specifically Tell her to be quiet, or silence, or silence, and this part of silence is then echoed by, I think, a rain stick, just where they go, silence, and like the, the S sound from that word just morphs into this rain stick, or that, that certain timbre, and I'm just like, man, it's like you can't even tell where the opera course begins or ends, or where these words begin or end. See, it's just part of this organism that's see, amazing. And-
0: See, and this is why you can't say anything bad about Sariajo, you know? I know! She is, she is Radiohead. You know?
1: <laughs> I, it's, I'm i telling you, I mean, I, I think it sounds musically amazing. And, you know, after actually watching the opera and going into being like, I'm just going to have this amazing aural experience i give a thumbs up to this opera
2: well and this is something that i think hands down the spectralists do probably better than almost everyone else this idea of of timbre being important yes but the idea also of masking timbre and and creating a seamless continuity between one event and another and the fact that you can't tell exactly whether that sound you're listening to in this opera is electronic is that the choir is that a flute what is what is making that noise right now is that the singer right yeah definitely i mean
0: she's a badass what no she really
1: say? is and i would even say like on a different level even going further and this might be crazy talk but it's almost like the orchestra through its spectral um, Tambers and 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 tricks and potions have become its own operatic character. Just really commenting on what is going on, and that's why I think it could be the secondary opera chorus through the orchestra, or or the the orchestra and the chorus combined. Just really comments on specific words through timbre.
0: Yeah. What really uh, struck me about this scene was actually the the end of it where because you have uh Clement's talking in the beginning and then the uh, the choirs come in and they kind of have their their say and then there's kind of a big break and then Clement's and the pilgrim kind of start again and it was it was interesting to me because Jen like you say she's kind of you know she's kind of jumping around and it's an, and it's a, an athletic uh it's an athletic vocal part, but at the same time, I think it's coherent. Oh yeah, because because she's only using a small collection of pitches. Yes, you know, in the in that it actually reminded me a lot of um, a a piece by Earl Kim. That um, I found on a it was a it was a CD of uh, it was all Don Upshaw, and the piece by Earl Kim is called Where Grief Slumbers, and there's a uh, in the middle movement uh, a middle movement in this it's like uh, I think string quartet harp and or maybe string quintet harp and uh, and soprano I can't remember exactly uh, what the ensemble is but it almost doesn't matter because. The, you could just say this entire piece is a soprano solo with light instrumental accompaniment. And that's in this middle movement called Ophelia. He It is a soprano solo. It's like a seven minute movement. And for about five minutes, all you hear is the soprano. It's just soprano solo. And it's it's incredibly gorgeous. And he starts off, literally with i think three pitches and gradually we introduce a few more here and there but it's just a collection but it's gorgeous and that i got the same sense from the end of this where where clements is singing and and the pilgrim is singing they're not they're not really stepping on each other harmonically it's very coherent mm-hmm. and it's just due to that fact that you know she's not she's not trying to go too many places pitch wise and i think like That's something that I can always, that I always need to tell myself when I'm writing, you know, it's like, especially for Mm -hmm. voice, like, don't don't do too much. Just rely on the fact that the words are captivating and it's human voice. I mean, what more do you need?
1: Agreed. I mean, I think that the reason why I do like this opera now is because she knew when to use her notes and knew when not to use them. Honestly, just perfect in that regard.
2: Does anyone else feel like uh obviously the 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 scene that we're going to play here, but also the very end. It just it's so and not static, but it's intensely stretched out. It just feels like I don't know, if I were an, a member of the orchestra playing this, I just feel like it would be exhausting to maintain the Ener- the energy of it. And I'm not talking like bang, crash, boom, you know, Tchaikovsky cannons energy. I'm talking about this, this continual seething tension with very limited material. Right? I mean, the strings in a lot of this are holding some incredibly long, high notes. And, and all of these, these, uh, these gestures are very drawn out and protracted. And it's just it almost feels interminable.
1: I, I would say you would yeah. need yeah, that,
2: that's, that's like, yeah. a
1: lot of stamina. I think this is why, like going back and reading some reviews for the Met performance where they just give a major hat tip and congrats to Suzanne Malky because it's like, if you can conduct that, if you can yeah. conduct these long tones and have phrasing, right? right <laughs> the right. phrases are also ridiculously long. It's like, bring her back and bring her back soon.
0: So we're going to listen to. Go ahead, Jen, say it.
1: Ah, je vais cru en toi.
0: Perfect. Couldn't have, I, well, no, I wouldn't have done it any better. (laughs) You
1: know that there's going to be some like French asshole just, you know, inhaling a cigarette going, (laughs) no. This is shit.
3: (laughs) Stupid accent.
2: Thoughts. You know, it was, I don't know if these are parting thoughts, but it was interesting in the uh, Peter Sellers um, DVD with the bonus materials, the interviews with the three uh, key players, the director, the conductor, and of course the composer. Um, Sariajo basically brings out, you know, these, these, goals she had in mind or some essential questions that she was continuing continuing to ask herself while she was thinking about the opera. And I'm I'm wondering I'm wondering if we all agree that, you know, it it is uh more or less very apparent that these were the questions on her mind. Um if you if you don't mind me asking them. Yeah, go for it. I mean, the first thing that was on her mind, of course, was how to create a seamless relationship between the text and music. So I find it interesting. A, the word seamless, of course, is another one of those spectral things, I think. Um, But is that the effect that we particularly hear toward the end of the opera? I think more of that happens at the end than necessarily the beginning.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there there are definitely points like we like we said that you know you can you can feel that seamless connection between um, between text and like the, sorry the the sound of the text and the sounds in the in the orchestra. But I mean, you can't do that all the time. Like, we need you know th- despite the <laughs> despite the fact that there is you know a very simple story, you still need to hear the words. You know.
2: Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's also a different way of approaching an opera. So, like, for me personally, I think it's important to tell a story, whereas, like, that first question, I don't know if she's necessarily thinking about the story. She's m- more thinking about the sounds associated with everything that's produced in an opera, or all the sounds that are produced in an opera, from, like, text to speech to singing to instrumentation. Which is an interesting challenge. I, I find this very fascinating. I should also watch the DVD specials. That would probably be a thing.
2: Um, I, I mean I, I found them fascinating. It it's always interesting to hear Peter Sellers speak about his work.
1: Yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. That's it. That's yes. All, that's all there is. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Um,
2: so I, she she also talked about you know considering her means right uh, by by what means could she most effectively create a character's musical identity and I think that kind of came up in our discussions as well when Jen was talking about the uh, the the music that happens at the beginning of act four kind of heralding or hearkening the death of, of this, uh, troubadour's music. Right. And so the idea that, that even though, I mean, perhaps I need to do a little more listening. Uh, but m- much of this opera has a very similar sounding texture, not all of it, obviously, but, but, uh, if you do a drop the needle test for someone who is uninitiated, I would think that you'd probably get them uh to to consider this more more or less the same type of sound through much of the opera. Yes, and also yeah, that would be I'll a agree.
1: cruel cruel exam, but
3: proceed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. This sounds like fun. I don't know. <laughs> um but yeah, I I definitely think that that based on what Jen had, had said especially uh, going back there are a lot of musical moments that they're not really leitmotivic but but there are there are materials that that do uh, uh, epitomize a particular character in this and there are only 3 which is you know good because then economy of material right um the last thing she had mentioned was she was concerned with how to create a structure that rises out of the subject and the material, which I don't know. It, Jen, you've written more opera than the rest of us on this particular podcast. I think um, is that the Bye. whole is is that the whole thing in a nutshell?
1: Uh, I'm shaking my head with this because when watching the opera, I didn't think that there was necessarily a form that transcends the plot for the opera. That being said, maybe this will encourage you, encourage me to just listen to the opera without any visuals and maybe mm. I might catch on to this. But as of right now, I will say ask again later. We're, we're going to see how <laughs> I feel about this. That's, that's my favorite magic eight ball response. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, awesome guys. I think we've uh, I think we've covered it. Um, okay, Andrew, last thought on the drink.
2: Oh, that that um, never again. <laughs> never again.
0: Are you sure you don't want to give the. Uh, the the brand so other people can avoid
2: it. No, I believe that everyone is entitled to their own experiences. <laughs> but you know that I'm going so, to stay away
1: from everything ginger and apple e and alcoholic. Yeah, you just I mean, know you've ruined that's, it for everyone. <laughs> so
0: That's pretty specific. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't I don't think Budweiser makes that, you know. So like you'd have to get
2: <laughs>
0: I, I actually It'd be interesting to see if there was even one more ginger apple. What was it? Ginger apple cider.
2: Uh, ginger apple ale. Ale.
0: Yes. Ginger apple ale. Yeah, I'm guessing there's only one of those in the in the liquor department. <laughs> so for our listeners, it sucks.
2: <laughs> you heard it here first, yes, folks. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> we, we warned you.
3: <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, again, you know, sorry, complete badass. Um, I think it uh, hopefully, um, you know, this is the first time in a 100 years that a opera by a woman has been performed at the Met. Hopefully, this is a sign of good things to come in terms of in terms of that. But I mean, also, just just from a purely musical standpoint, you know, this I mean, the Met should be doing things like this. Yes. Yes. You know. So I guess what that means is, uh, yay, gender equality, and yay, uh, really fricking good music.
1: Agreed. Here, here. Yes, indeed.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks guys for doing this. This was a lot of fun.
1: This was this was cool. Yeah.
2: <laughs> good suggestion, Jen.
1: Oh, thank you. I think I like the opera now.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.